We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. Hosted by RebelGrove.com publisher Neil McCrady and Pinnacle Trust financial guru Martin Palomo, the Mind on My Money podcast tackles the financial questions we're all thinking about. From paying for college to saving for retirement, from life insurance needs to 401ks and everything in between. The goal is to help you take the stress out of financial concerns and give you some tips to enjoy life while your mind is on your money. Now here are your hosts, Neil McCrady. And Martin Paloma. Welcome to another edition of Mind on My Money, presented by Pinnacle. I'm Neil McCready. Martin Palomo not with me today. And it's not Martin's fault. Believe it or not, this is the one month in my life, I think in the history, like at least the last 15 years, where I, I have an existence. And so I'm going to be out of town on Thursday. So I'm taping on a uh, Saturday. Uh, Martin will handle the week after that, and then starting in August, we'll be back to our usual uh, publish on Thursday afternoon with here on Mind of My Money. Today, Dr. Joshua Hendrickson, the chair of the Department of Economics and associate professor of economics at the University of Mississippi. His areas of expertise include monetary theory, history, and policy and political economy. He has a Bachelor of Arts and a Master of Arts in Economics from the University of Toledo. He has a Ph.D. in economics from Wayne State University, teaches courses in macroeconomics, economic growth, and international trade. His primary area of research is monetary theory and policy. He publishes a newsletter on Substack called Economic Forces. He also hosts a podcast under the same name. All the cool kids read it. They all listen. And he is kind enough to join us today on Mind on My Money. Josh, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'll tell a couple of uh, things about Josh that will make people, uh, you'll get a kick out of this. And Josh, one of these stories, I don't even think you know. Um, I met Josh, our kids, we have sons that are the same age. And uh, he helped coach a little league baseball team with us. He's the, the, uh, he's the most easygoing youth baseball coach I've ever seen in my life. Um, also, more, more pertinent, my daughter Campbell, who is about to start her senior year in uh, business at the University of Arkansas, it was the the pandemic year. We probably will touch on the pandemic at some point in the next hour or so. Um, during that year, she was taking Josh. Was it macroeconomics or microeconomics? I can't remember um, which. Micro. She was taking microeconomics, and uh, she had a professor who was pretty cool. Um, he had this deal that he'd been doing for years. He had this really complex problem. And he said, if you, if you can solve this, you get an A, period. 
and no one had ever solved it before. So she sent it to me, and I looked at it like, why are you sending this to me? I, it beats the hell out of me. I have no chance. And I said, I'm going to send this to, uh, to Hendrickson and see what happens. So I sent it to, to Josh, and I don't know, about 10 minutes later, the answer comes back. And I sent the answer on to Campbell, who sent it to her professor. Her professor picks up the phone and calls her and says, how'd you do this? And Campbell texts me like, what do I say? And I said, just tell the truth. And she said, well, I gave it to my dad, and he gave it to a friend of his who's this economics professor at Ole Miss. And the guy was just bumfuzzled that you were able to solve that that quickly. Um, he, he said, well, here's the deal. I, I will give you the A, but you've got to get him to show you how he did it, and then you've got to come in and be able to talk through it with me so that at least I, I know that you understand the course, and you have to finish the course. And she did, and he, he lived up to it. He gave her an A. I think she would have otherwise probably had a B. But I thought he was a good sport about that during a pandemic year, and he was one of the professors up there that, like you, I think thought some of the pandemic policies were ridiculous. So anyway, appreciate you uh, doing that, and, and thanks for, uh, for spending some time with us here. No problem. All right, so here, here's the question I've got, and this is a complex question. I read the Wall Street Journal every day, and different people say different things about are we in a recession are we not in a recession? And if we're not in a recession, are we headed to a recession? What I remember, and I'm not trying to get overly political here, but three years ago, pre-pandemic, kind of felt like the economy was booming. Everybody's 401k was growing. Uh, interest rates were low. Uh, if you wanted a job, you pretty much had a job. Um, gas prices were low. People were able to afford vacations. Life kind of felt good. And now there's a lot of doom and gloom economically uh, out there. So I'll start with this. How, how did we get here? And where are we? Well, I think that's a long story. It depends on a lot of different factors. So I guess one aspect I think that we've talked about in the past is government debt and the growth of government debt over time. And another thing that we've kind of talked about is the increasing role of the Federal Reserve in the economy. And then you throw in on top of this, we've got an economy that sort of was shut down and then restarted. And so you've got this confluence of factors, some of which are you know, decade-long trends. Some of them are more recent things. And then you have all this pandemic-related stuff. And I think it's all kind of coming together simultaneously. And that's where a lot of the angst is uh, coming from. How much of this was avoidable and how much of this was just economic cycles that, that happen over the course of decades? So I think in terms of government debt, this is something that has kind of been facilitated by the monetary system. So what I mean by that is that after World War II, we had what was called the Bretton Woods system. And the idea was we were going to create an international monetary system. And that international monetary system would be based on gold and the dollar. And so the idea was we would tie the dollar to gold and then 
all of the international currencies in the Western world and, uh, you know, in like Japan and places like that would all be tied to the dollar. Um, that system ultimately collapsed, uh, mostly because central banks were pursuing their own self-interest, in particular the Federal Reserve. And when it collapsed, something had to take its place. And kind of what took its place is this dollar-based system that we have. And so the U.S. dollar has become the global currency of the world. So if anybody wants to hold wealth, they generally hold it in dollar-denominated assets. So they hold U.S. Treasury bonds, for example. And so if you think about government debt, the limitations on government debt are similar to the limitations that you and I would have on debt, right? It's about the capacity to pay back the debt. The thing that's different about a government is that they live a lot longer than you and I do, or at least we hope so. And so they can pay it off over longer periods of time. They tend to be able to take on much more debt than uh, you or I could take on because unlike you and I, uh, they can tax people to pay back the, the debt. I can't go to the University of Mississippi and say, hey, I've taken on a lot of debt, so I'm going to need you to give me more money this year. <laughs> uh, the government can do that. And so the constraints that are usually placed on debt is kind of like the borrowing interest rate that the government faces. But because the U.S. dollar is the global currency of the world, there's this excess demand for dollars and dollar-denominated assets. And so what that means is that the U.S. government can kind of take on more debt than a typical country without the financial consequences. So they're able to borrow more at lower rates. And so this creates conditions where politicians and decision makers don't have to be as sensitive to uh, concerns about you know, government debt and the trajectory of government debt. Now, of course, the issue here is it's hard to determine whether or not the debt path is sustainable. So a typical way that we think about it is we think about um, like debt to GDP ratios. So this is kind of similar to like a debt to income ratio for an individual. Okay. Uh, but a lot of people focus on the ratio itself and they, and, and so they'll, they'll look at it and they'll say, well, you know, the debt to GDP ratio is like 130%. And then they'll kind of say, well, is that sustainable or not? But that's not really the question. The question is about the trajectory. Like is the jet, is the debt to GDP ratio growing and how quickly is it growing? And the faster that it's growing, uh, the, the less sustainable the, the debt is. Uh, the more likely it is that you would have kind of a default or, or something like that. So how fast is it growing now? Uh, it's growing quite rapidly. 
Um, Which begs the question, is, is it sustainable? And if, well, it, and, and, if it, is, and if it's not sustainable in practical terms, what does that mean? Well, and this is the issue, is that the difficult thing about um, the sustainability of the debt is it's oftentimes like a sudden stop. So what I mean by that is there's this great line in a Hemingway book uh, where there's there two characters talking, and the one character asks the other, uh, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> and uh, and that's kind of the <laughs> kind appropriate Kind of makes sense way. if you think about yeah. it, yeah. Yes, <laughs> and that's kind of the appropriate way to think about it. Is and, and this is what happens with governments, is that typically the way that they find out that their debt is unsustainable is they find it very hard to auction off new uh, bonds. And so you tend to get that signal very, very suddenly. So I'm, I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal at this very moment, right? And, and there's a story in the Wall Street Journal that the U.S. added 372,000 jobs in June, Employers continued to snap up workers in June, though at a slower pace than earlier in the year, in an economy that is otherwise cooling rapidly. The second story is jobs report could keep Fed on track for 0.75 point raise rate in July. The latest strong em- employment figures keep the Federal Reserve on track to raise interest rates by 0.75 percentage point at its meeting later this month to cool high inflation. We're obviously, everyone's talking about inflation. Food costs up 44% uh, in, in, in some markets, which is a remarkable number. Um, so every day when I read this, there's, there's some mention of recession. Are we in a recession? Is a recession inevitable? You, you're a, you study these kinds of things for a living. You write about it. You talk about it. You teach young people about it. Are, are we... Are we in a recession? Is a recession inevitable? What does that What does that look like? So actually, the data is really weird right now. Um, so typically, if you take an intro macro class, they'll define a recession as two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. So basically, what that means is you experience six months of time where you're producing less stuff in the economy than you were, you know, the previous year. And if you look at GDP data, um, GDP growth was negative in the first quarter. Uh, The Atlanta Fed has a real-time forecast that kind of incorporates all the information that accumulates over a particular quarter, and they're predicting that we're going to have a second straight quarter of negative GDP growth. But typically, when you experience those periods of negative GDP growth, you also see unemployment rising, and that's not what we're seeing at all. Right. So the, the labor market looks fairly strong. And so the question is kind of what, what's going on? Is this, um, so is the slowdown in economic ac- activity just kind of signaling that maybe unemployment's going to rise in the future? Uh, Or is this kind of a quirk of the data? Is this something that has to do with coming out of the pandemic? Uh, The data is very hard to read. 
What's your gut feeling tell you? I think that what we're going to experience is we're going to continue to experience slow economic activity. I think that we're going to see more declines in asset prices. And I would suspect that this is going to start to affect employment uh, and other sorts of things. But kind of the difficulty here is that if you think about the pandemic and you think about the decline in economic activity, usually what's happening is that when there's a decline in economic activity, what's going on is the government is trying to stimulate more economic activity to kind of uh, shorten the length of the recession or make the recession less severe or something like that. And in a lot of ways, during the pandemic, we had similar type policies, but these policies were aimed at different things. So it was kind of like, well, we've shut down the economy. And so we've taken away the ability of some people to earn income. And if we've taken away their ability to earn income, you know, how are they going to pay their bills? How are they going to survive? How are they going to get through this? And so we had these, uh, payment protection plan programs, and we were sending checks to people and that sort of thing. And what you see in the data is what you is exactly what you would expect. So a lot of this money that was injected into the system was just saved. So it was either used to pay down debt or it was, uh, or, or it was put in a savings account or the stock market or something like that. Um, you know, to kind of prepare for when this was over or to kind of prepare for a pandemic that lasted longer than maybe we thought. And then once things started reopening again, what you saw is people started very rapidly drawing down on that additional savings. And so what you would expect is pretty rapid economic activity. And if you look at Unemployment, you know, it's kind of consistent with that. But if you look at aggregate data on, you know, how much we're producing and things like that, uh, it's it's not evident there, or at least it's not evident there anymore. The whole shutdown thing. I, mean, I know I can't speak of it the way as intelligently as you can because I, I'm not as intelligent as you are. But I remember you and I talking when that first happened. And I think we both thought this is maybe short term, this is the right thing for a couple of weeks. But as it, as it stretched on and on, people like you and I, we were not alone, but it was not easy to be vocal. People like you and I were like, this is, this is stupid. And then the, the PPP thing, you knew there was going to be incredible abuse of that. And there was. I have a friend in um, federal law enforcement who has told me that you would just be absolutely stunned at the amount of fraud that occurred as a result of PPP. And it's fraud that 99.99 something percent of the people will get away with. The money's gone. It's, but I ask all that to ask this. We, we, in, in, in quotes, did this. Our children are going to pay for this, aren't they? I mean, down the road, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when they are our age, they're going to still be paying for this 
overreaction to a pandemic. That's my opinion. Am I, am I right economically? Well, I think it gets back to the story about government debt and the pace at which it's increasing looks unsustainable. And so what that means is that people are either going to face higher tax rates in the future, uh, some possibility of U.S. default, um, or you're going to get, you know, higher average rates of inflation to kind of eat away at the debt. And I don't see any way of avoiding one of those three scenarios. I doubt that the, that the U.S. government will default because, you know, you can, if you have your own currency, uh, you can kind of pay for, off some of the debt through money creation, either, you know, directly or indirectly. Meaning literally just print more money? Essentially, yeah. But that devalues the money, correct? Yeah, so you're paying for it through inflation instead of higher taxes. So the answer to my question is yes, your son and my son and my daughters and your daughter, we're, we're, they're, they're going to pay for this. Yeah, eventually this stuff has to be paid for. And eventually you're going to get to a point where even though there's this massive demand for dollars internationally, you're ultimately going to reach a point where people are going to get concerned about the purchasing power of the dollar and they're going to want to diversify. And when those international actors start diversifying, uh, then this ability to kind of increase our debt without the negative consequences is going to end. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. 
No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. So when you say diversify, can you, for the people like me who don't necessarily know what that means, what do you mean? So if I'm somebody who does business in Germany or China or Russia or somewhere like that, I tend to hold a lot of my wealth in dollars and dollar denominated assets because that's a global reserve currency. Uh, the U S has never defaulted on its debt. So it's a relatively safe, uh, asset. But over time, if you've got too much of your wealth in one asset, you're going to want to hold different assets. And so maybe instead of holding so many dollar-denominated assets, maybe you hold euro-denominated assets. Maybe you hold uh, commodities like gold or something like that. Uh, there are just other ways to store your wealth. You don't have to store it in dollars and dollar-denominated assets. And so over time, you know, if if there's too many dollars out there floating around in the system, people are going to try to use those dollars to buy other assets to kind of cushion themselves in case something bad happens with the dollar. What does this mean for things like, I don't know, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, just government assistance? that is, you know, dependent on taxpayers and that type thing, is, is that sustainable in the near and long future at this point? Or if we stay on this path, does the, I keep thinking when I hear people talk about this, I keep thinking, and maybe I'm wrong, feel free to tell me, no, you're, you're overreacting to it. I keep thinking, well, something at some point has to give, uh, you know, you, you can't just continue to, you can't just continue to careen down the, down the mountain path out of control without at some point realistically expecting to go over the side and crash the car. And it kind of feels like we're doing that, but what does that mean in terms of, you know, social security and, and things that, you know, people that are in their late sixties, early seventies that have paid into the system all of their lives, are they going to get the dividend from it? Well, it sort of depends on that path that we're talking about. I think that, people are likely to get these benefits. The question is, what's the cost? And if you look at governments, you know, the modern state, the way that we think about states today or governments today, the modern states really only existed for like two centuries. And if you look at that time period, for most of that time period, predominantly what the government spent its money on was defense. You know, governments funded militaries, and that was overwhelmingly what they spent money on. What we've seen uh, in the aftermath of the Great Depression is that many of the states have kind of turned into insurance companies. So they collect tax revenue and they promise to pay out benefits uh, in the future or even in some places, you know, right now. Like if you live in Canada, they have a single payer system. You pay, you pay 
taxes. And then when you go to a hospital or a doctor, you know, it's covered by the government. So that's literal insurance, but social security and Medicare are really the same sort of thing. It's just that who's able to collect those benefits is different. But if you look at what has happened in major developed countries is governments have transitioned towards, you know, most of their budget being allocated to the military to most of their budget being allocated towards these entitlement programs. So they've become much more like insurance companies uh, than, you know, I guess military states. So we're coming up on an election cycle. We're going to have the midterms here in November, which will be here before you know it, because the fall always flies by with all the activities people have and football season and all that stuff. And you look up and it's the first Tuesday of November. And I think at this point, it's it's fair to expect that there's going to be a good bit of overhaul in Congress, which is probably a good thing. Um and then we're going to launch into this new presidential cycle, which is going to be a fascinating thing. And I'm not getting into this to get political at all, but I'm, I'm getting into it to ask this. If you were, if you were advising a candidate, um, any candidate on either side of the aisle, would, is, there a, is there a path for a, whoever the next president is, even if it's Biden getting reelected, which I think is unlikely, but anyway... Is there a is there is there a path that someone could take that would come in and, and could reverse some of what's happened over the last several years where we could get back to the prosperity or at least the perceived prosperity of uh you know the the 2010s? Yeah, I I absolutely think so. But I think that I think that one of the biggest problems is that there's too much governance through ideology. Government tends to work most effectively when it's aimed at practical problems. So what are the things that people are worried about at the kitchen table? And is the government working to solve those things? And one of my frustrations with what's going on right now is there's a lot of focus on things that are ideological goals and longstanding ideological goals that are kind of taking fronters that that are taking center stage that aren't as important at the moment as other things. And I think that there's a lot of focus on trying to achieve particular goals right now when some of these things, so I'll, I'll give you an example. If you think about a lot of this environmental stuff. That's where I was there going. There are a lot was, of people who are about trying to, to push, you know, decarbonization, um, switching our energy production away from things like coal and natural gas and oil and things like that and towards renewable forms of energy. And Whatever you think of that, whether you think that's a good idea or a bad idea, if we're going to do that, this is a long-term goal. This is something that's going to take a long period of time. Can I interject something real quick just yeah. along those yeah. lines? Because this is—I was in Houston 
a week ago, I went to visit my brother. And as you know, I'm, I'm, I think you know, you've, I think you've been there before. Houston just sprawls. I mean, it's just massive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you to drive, my brother lives in Katy. We went to an Astros game, obviously in downtown. To get from Katy downtown is 45 minutes. To get from Katy to Bush International, which is where my flight was in and out of, was 50 minutes. Uh, it takes time. Uh, it's just so much land. And everywhere you go, you see cars. People are driving cars because they that city's too big to realistically have a, a a practical form of mass transportation. You know, it's not like New York or Philadelphia or Washington, where really those cities have lots of people, but they're not huge cities. They're they're you know you can you can walk from one end of Manhattan to the other, and it's going to take a while, and your feet are going to hurt when it's over, but you can do it. You can't walk from one end of Houston to the other, from one end of Dallas, realistically, to the other. That, that's not doable. And so I, I was thinking as we were just driving around, we are talking about it because Houston is one of the energy capitals of the world, and you have the, these people that, that are talking. And, and, and I've, like you said, it's idealistic, I think. It's way too idealistic. It's, it's that we're going to all go to these, these renewable forms of, of vehicles. We're going to get away from, from even selling uh, vehicles that are fueled by petroleum, gas, and we're going to go to batteries. And I'm thinking as I'm looking at that, this is completely unrealistic. This is, this is, complete, this is a fantasy. This is, it, it is a, the equivalent of, of, a, of a kid going, hey, Dad, I'm, I'm going to play in the NBA. Okay, cool. I mean, it's fun to have that dream, but if you want to have that dream, man, you're going to really have to put some work in. And, and know this, it's probably not realistic because most people don't get to the NBA. I don't think it's realistic, Josh, at all, after just thinking about it. I mean, and even in Oxford, Water Valley, you, 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 it's not practical. It's, it's nowhere close to being practical. And then in a place like Houston, if in a, if in a world where you got everybody using a battery-operated car, they have to charge that car at night. We don't have anything resembling the grid that would be needed in place to, to sustain that. And I'm not saying it's not a good idea. Maybe it is. Maybe it is a good idea. But it's not 10 years away. It's, it's probably not 50 years away. It's more than that. And I have no problem with aspiring to that. But punishing the economy in the process feels like a completely unnecessary um, doesn't feel like that's something that, that had to be done that has to be done it feels like you could continue to let let companies drill and produce and and for us to try to to be as a country be energy uh, self-sufficient all while working on this future technology that would be theoretically kinder to the planet yeah i think there's a lot of urgency about things that we really can't be urgent about even if your number one concern is the planet and climate change and things like that, you're not going to be able to change these things without substantial costs. And those substantial costs are not things that the average person is going to be willing to tolerate. And you're starting to see this in some developing countries because some of these developing countries are instituting some of these uh, environmental restrictions. And developing countries are poor countries by definition. 
And some of these environmental policies are backfiring because in addition to these policies, you've got a war going on in Ukraine. And that's affecting the supply of oil and natural gas and wheat and fertilizer. And so there are actually problems in some of these developing countries where people don't have enough food. And they're starting to revolt. I just saw a video this morning from Sri Lanka where a bunch of protesters essentially showed up, um, you know, and kind of, you know, we're storming the government. Stormed the president's house, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and they're swimming in his pool and uh, <laughs> doing all these things. Yeah. They and that's because they're desperate. And they're desperate because, you know, they're hungry. And so when we think about, when we think about goals, and we think about what we want to achieve, we also have to have realistic expectations about when we can achieve those goals. And so I don't want to take a position on what our energy uh, structure should be and how much should come from particular sources and that sort of thing. But even if you take for granted that we should be shifting away from things like oil and gas and coal to, you know, solar and wind and other sort of renewable type energies. You can't do it tomorrow. It has to be a gradual process. And if you try to do it tomorrow, there's going to be substantial costs that are actually going to undermine your objectives if you try to push those now. Because people aren't going to be willing to tolerate those costs. People are accustomed to a sort of standard of living and they want to maintain that standard of living. And if, you know, there's something that's preventing them from maintaining that standard of living, you know, this tends to cause problems. Yeah. And I see this beyond just energy. I think that there's a lot of things uh, that the government is worried about right now. And some of them I agree with, some of them I don't agree with. But they want everything done yesterday, and it's just not possible. And it's, and it's even more difficult coming out of a pandemic when we have all of these supply chain disruptions. Uh, we've still got China doing these like insane zero-COVID policies. And amidst that backdrop, I don't know how you can try to rush through all of these other things. What are some of the other things? that there's not going to be negative consequences. What are some of the things that you're talking about? Well, I mean, if you look at... Um, if you look at the Federal Reserve, for example, one of the things that I'm concerned about is that the Federal Reserve used to have a small balance sheet. And the way that they would manage the money supply is by buying and selling government debt on the open market. And that was a way of sort of putting money into the system, pulling money out of the system to kind of maintain their target for inflation. During the financial crisis, the, the Federal Reserve really shifted towards doing what I would call credit policy. 
they were trying to help particular banks and financial institutions to weather the financial crisis. And so what they were doing is instead of just doing these open market operations like they did before, which was kind of managing uh, aggregate liquidity in the system, what they started doing is targeting where this funding was going. And then they were concerned that by injecting more liquidity into the system, they'd create inflation. So initially what they started doing is they would inject liquidity into one market and then they would kind of pull liquidity out of another market so that aggregate liquidity didn't change. And they were doing that to try to prevent inflation. But what they quickly realized is with the size of their balance sheet, they couldn't do that sort of a thing. And so they started paying uh, interest on the reserves that banks hold at the Federal Reserve. And what this allowed them to do was to inject liquidity into the financial system, but by paying interest on these reserves, it incentivized the banks to just kind of hold on to this money. And whatever you think about that in terms of dealing with the financial crisis, their balance sheet has gotten significantly bigger in size. And it got significantly bigger in size without creating inflation because banks were sitting on a lot of this money. And what that's created is it's created these um, calls for, from politicians to get the Federal Reserve involved in things that they've never been involved in before. And so what they're trying to do is saying, well, look, you know, the Fed is able to expand its balance sheet. It doesn't cause inflation. And so why aren't they using this power they have to expand the size of their balance sheet to kind of get involved in these other things that we're interested in? And you see people like Elizabeth Warren, for example, who are kind of uh, pushing the Federal Reserve to care about things that maybe are worth caring about, but it's unclear that the Federal Reserve should be thinking about them at all. And if we start to politicize the Federal Reserve, then this is going to create significant problems. Yeah, we just we, we need a Federal Reserve that is essentially an unfeeling, unthinking, robotic calculator type of body i mean we we don't we don't need it to have a political opinion one way or the other right i mean ideally it it just it just operates as efficiently as possible yeah i mean the argument for central banks is that they can provide a backstop to the financial system um but if you have a central bank then they kind of have to manage the money supply and interest rates and so because they have that power, you want them to use that power to provide financial stability and prevent inflation because they're the ones who create inflation, right? So their job should essentially be to serve as a lender of last resort to the financial system uh, and provide price stability. And 
you know, coming out of the pandemic, the Federal Reserve had a very difficult job because a lot of the data that you would typically use to conduct monetary policy was not reliable um, or subject to significant revision. And so they have this really difficult job of trying to maintain this price stability when they have unreliable data, they're not really clear what's going to happen, um, how's the pandemic going to play out, there's regional variation in um, economic restrictions. So you have some states that were still closed and some states that were open and all these other sorts of things. And so they had a very, very difficult job. Um, but then they ended up falling behind the curve. And because they fell behind the curve, we're experiencing inflation right now. And my concern is that if we politicize the Fed, that's going to distract them from their main goals, which is maintaining financial stability and price stability. And because they're distracted, then we're going to suffer because any time you're spending on these other projects is time that you can't spend, you know, doing other things. And financial stability is important. Price stability is important, as everybody is realizing right now. And that's just what we want the Fed to do. And we don't really want them to do anything else. They shouldn't be doing any, anything else. And the things that they want them to do are predominantly things that fiscal policy should be used for. But fiscal policy is subject to uh, democratic politics, right? You've got to get people elected, and then those people have to implement these policies. I think what they find attractive about the Fed is that the Fed could potentially do these things without going through the democratic process, right? It's just a technocratic institution. Curious on something, um, totally a little different, but it's all tied together. The story, it's actually an opinion piece, I think, in the in the uh, Wall Street Journal today on Saturday. This, you're hearing this later in the week. This is Saturday, July the 9th, as Josh and I taped this. It says, cryptocurrency is coming to your credit cards. Will you one day use crypto for everyday purchases? Visa, MasterCard, and others are betting on it and taking steps to, to pave the way. I always ask about what advice to give to young people you work obviously you're employed because young people come to college and 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 want to learn which is another subject entirely that I'd like to take up with a few people in in the uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic but I won't put you on that spot um yeah they just just a, a quick aside the idiocy of of not wanting to have classes when you are employed for the sole purpose of teaching young people at an institution of higher learning is something that I cannot wrap my head around. And those people claim to be smarter than I am, and I, 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 I can't get there. But I am curious, when you talk to young people or if young people in your class say, hey, Dr. Hendrickson, what do you think about cryptocurrency? How much of this should I have? How dependent on it should I be? What should I be thinking? I'm, I'm 21 years old or I'm 20 years old, and you know, I'm going to try to be a responsible adult one day, and I, I, I want to. I, I want to have a life where I have, um, I have money and 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 comfort, and, and I want to work hard. And I want to be rewarded, and I want to set up for my retirement so that when I'm in my maybe my 60s or whatnot, I can go vacation and 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 live the good life like I saw my parents do or or, or whatever. 
How much do you, what do you tell them about cryptocurrency? What are your thoughts there? I know you have a lot of thoughts because I've seen you talk about and write about cryptocurrency a lot. How, how, where's this going? Yeah, I get asked about this a lot. I'm sure. And I, partially I get asked about this a lot because I've written a lot about it and students find me. Even non-econ students will show up at my office wanting to talk to me about this. I think for me, the creation of Bitcoin was really fascinating. And the reason I say that is that there was this mini debate in economics in the 1970s when we had very high rates of inflation about bringing back a competitive monetary system. So prior to central banks, for example, you know, individual banks just issued their own banknotes. So you could have $100 in your pocket and maybe, I mean, this is not literally true because a lot of these places didn't exist back then, but you could have like a $50 bill issued by Bank of America and like a $20 bill issued by like regions or something like that. And so you just, you could have currency issued by all of these banks. Did I lose you, Josh? Banks issued their own banknotes. And when they issued their own banknotes, they were redeemable for something like gold or silver or something like that. Well, in the 1970s, you had all this high inflation. Um, and so what you had is people sort of saying, well, you know, once upon a time, we had this competitive monetary system where banks were issuing their own um, banknotes um, rather than the central bank being the only one who's able to issue currency. And so, you know, maybe we should go back to something like that because maybe we wouldn't, we wouldn't experience all this inflation. Um, and then the other thing is that um, you know, people kind of said, well, you know, we're probably not going to go back to something that would look like a gold standard or um, something like that. And so maybe we can have like, com you know, um, a competitive monetary system where everybody's issuing their own notes, but they're not really redeemable for anything. And so there was this kind of debate about, well, could you even make that kind of a system work? Because, you know, um, kind of the way that you know, these early banks got people to accept the banknotes as they knew they could always bring them back and get something of value like gold or silver for those banknotes. And so if you weren't going to redeem them for anything, like, you know, how, uh, how would this system work? And so there was this paper um, which kind of laid out the incentives um, for having like a competitive money supply where that money is not really backed by some commodity or something like that. And in that paper, what it basically revealed is that the entire thing comes down to trust. So could you trust the person who's issuing this bank, uh, or who's issuing these banknotes? Could you actually trust these people um, not to one day just print up a bunch of banknotes and go buy a bunch of stuff and make themselves rich and then, you know, depreciate the value of, of the, the banknotes you're holding? And so the idea was, well, this entirely would come down to, uh, would come down to trust and, you know, it would be very hard to get a system like that off the ground because, you know, in order to 
trust somebody, they have to like establish a reputation. But to establish a reputation, they would have to issue these banknotes and people would have to be willing to accept them. But nobody's going to be willing to accept them before they have the reputation. And so it's kind of this thing where like, well, maybe this could, you know, it, it would just sort of never get off the ground. So the thing that fascinated me about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin kind of solved this problem because there is nobody who controls uh, or who has the capability to do that. So it's just a open source um, software that anybody can download and run. And that software limits the total amount of Bitcoin that can ever be in circulation. And so you don't have to worry that somebody one day is just going to print a bunch of Bitcoin and then your, you know, your, your Bitcoin wouldn't be worth anything. And so I thought that this was really fascinating. And I also thought it was fascinating because there was this kind of guy who was writing about competitive money. And, um, and he kind of argued, well, the way that we could actually have a competitive monetary system is you could just have like the Federal Reserve just freeze the supply of dollars today. And then you could let banks issue their own claims to those dollars. But anytime you wanted one of those Federal Reserve notes, you could always exchange it or something like that. And so basically it was, well, you could have this asset where there's a fixed supply and then people could issue claims to that fixed supply. And so then when I kind of saw like Bitcoin and what this was, um, I kind of saw, well, that's kind of similar to this guy's proposal. You could have this fixed supply of this particular asset. And then, you know, people could issue claims um, to that asset and it would function, you know, kind of the way these competitive banking systems operated. And so to me, it was kind of fascinating as an economist because it was kind of like a natural experiment in the sense that you had all these people who had kind of worked on these topics, but the topics were largely theoretical. Like there was no way to really test it because we had never seen anything like it before. And so then all of a sudden when Bitcoin kind of came about, um, you know, it, it was kind of this way of testing these theories and figuring out, you know, um, uh, how, uh, or, you know, who's right and who's wrong and whether or not these kinds of things can survive. Um, I'm still fascinated by Bitcoin today. Uh, I grow more fascinated every year that it survives because um, it's, it's an amazing sort of um, human experiment. Um, Cryptocurrency more generally, uh, I mean, some of this stuff is interesting and some of it's a scam. Um, and I think that's kind of the big uh, difficulty uh, for a lot of people is kind of distinguishing between what sorts of things are kind of like Bitcoin that seem like a genuine innovation that may one day, you know, um, play an important role in how people store their wealth and transact and things like that with some of these other projects that are just kind of, you know, blatantly like a get rich scheme by the people who create them. Yeah, it's obvious that some of it is a scam and it makes, I think it's what terrifies some people and it leads them to completely not get into it at all is that it's, you know, that some of it is legit and you know that some of it is not and differentiating for, for the average person, I think, can be can be complicated. Yeah. Like, um, I'm curious whether you agree with this. Uh, Reserve Federal Reserve Vice Chairwoman Lyle Brainerd said Friday that better guardrails are needed for cryptocurrency to protect small investors to dampen any risk that might emerge as the industry grows. Do you want to see the federal government involved in regulating cryptocurrency? Well, I guess it depends on what we... Uh, on, on what we mean here. So there are certain 
uh, cryptocurrency projects in which the cryptocurrency that they're issuing seems much more like um, like they're issuing uh, a like a stock without going through like an investment bank or a stock exchange. Um, those things are inevitably going to get regulated because you can't issue things that look like a stock and sound like a stock and um, talk like a stock, right? And and but pretend that they're not. Um, those things are obviously going to get regulated, and eventually the SEC is going to get involved. I think right now the SEC is kind of just treading lightly trying to determine, you know, exactly what the path forward is. Um, for things like Bitcoin, um, I mean, I, I, I don't know that we, you know, I, I don't know what they would mean by guardrails and things like that. I mean, the big thing um, with Bitcoin is, you know, it's it's entirely decentralized. Like the people who, uh, like people who download the software and run the software, like they're the nodes on the network that verify all of the transactions. Um, and so um, there's not really, I mean, who would you, who would you regulate? You know, like each individual node is just running some software. Also, like you can be anywhere in the world and run the software. Um, I think that one of the reasons we haven't seen any regulation is for this purpose is that it's actually very difficult to determine exactly what, um, like what they would do. I mean, I think, you know, some of the stuff is obvious where people are just issuing what are basically securities and pretending that they're some new form of cryptocurrency. Like those things are obvious. I think maybe too what she's referring to is there are a lot of companies um, that popped up in the last few years. And, um, and so what they tried to capitalize on is they were like, okay, a lot of people who bought things like Bitcoin have seen the price appreciate, but they think that the price is going to continue to appreciate. So they don't want to sell it. But that means that they have this kind of wealth that's just sitting there. Um, and you know, and so maybe they'd like to tap into that wealth in the same way that maybe you would like to tap into like the equity that you've accumulated in your home or something like that. Right. And so you had people who, created these uh, lending programs where, you know, you could deposit your Bitcoin with them and then, um, you know, uh, you could borrow against um, your Bitcoin or you could allow them to lend out your Bitcoin to someone else. Um, and a lot of these things just basically turned out to be scams and Ponzi schemes and uh, or just incompetently run companies. And so I think that's why it's attracting a lot more attention from the regulators is because they're kind of like, okay, at what point do we have to step in and kind of uh, create some rules for those kinds of companies? And so I think like when it comes to regulation, I think that those companies and I think that some of these, um, you know, more questionable projects are undoubtedly going to see uh, some form of regulation um, probably pretty quickly. Um, but in terms of Bitcoin itself, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what that would look like, really. I've kept you a long time. I'll finish on a different note. Um, and again, I really appreciate your time here on the Saturday morning. Um, I know two years ago when the whole pandemic hit, college campuses, I, I dealt with it from a, from a dad's perspective. You dealt with it from a, a professor's perspective. Uh, I know last year started out weird. It felt like it finished pretty normal. You're getting ready to... Um, 
embark on another academic year. Ole Miss has a massive freshman class coming in. For those freshmen that are returning to campus, is it does it feel like it's finally back to normal, pre-pandemic normal? It does for me, but I'm probably not representative. <laughs> I mean, because I never left um, – I never left campus. I was always uh, in my office. I kept teaching in person throughout the pandemic. So for me, not a lot has changed. I think by this, um, I think really when it felt, but but I think I guess really when it felt back to normal is when uh, they got rid of the mask mandate. Um, so when when you didn't have to wear a mask on campus anymore, then it then it kind of felt it felt normal again. How much did the kids appreciate you? still going in person i i'll never forget some of the conversations i had with my daughter and some of her friends last year when they got to go back they spent a whole year in virtual classes only uh, an entire year of your co- and it, people think that it's not a big deal you only go to college ideally for four years right i mean you're at undergrad for four years those are important years and you lose one what you lose 25 percent of your entire college experience to online only, and it's not the same. You know that. I know that. Uh, they were so thankful to go back to class. They were so excited to go be able to be have face-to-face interaction, not only with the professors, but obviously with the other students. That's part of the college experience, right? You're around other people that are like you. Um, how much did kids appreciate you? even though you had to do some of the mask stuff and whatnot, and I think you've shared some of my opinions on that, but the fact that you didn't cop out and bail out and do virtual only and the fact that you still let them have something resembling the college experience in a in, in an important – if you're in business, economics courses are important. Well, I think one of the – I mean, one of the main reasons that, you know – uh, I wanted to teach in person the entire time is I, I don't know how you would, I don't, I don't know how you can teach, um, economics, you know, over zoom. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like nuance. Um, you know, there's a, we use a lot of, uh, mathematical models. We use a lot of graphical models to kind of illustrate concepts, you know, and we do that because it makes it easier than using words. And so it's very hard to do that. I mean, I know that the students appreciated it because uh, some of the classes I were teaching were intro level classes and the intro level classes, um, usually on my final exam, um, I will ask students something about like, um, uh, I mean, you know, students like it because it's a way to get like some free points on the final exam. But I usually ask them a question about like, what's the most important thing that you learned and why? And the reason that I started asking that question is um, it sort of helped me to kind of figure out like what I do well and what I don't do well. If everybody says the same thing, then chances are like I'm good at explaining that, but maybe I need to work on the other stuff. Um, You know, but also I'm trying to get their perspective, you know, like what, you know, what did they find really interesting? What did they learn? Like what, you know, um, uh, especially like the longer you do this, the more, the farther away you are from being a student. And so you have to kind of, this is like a really good way of, um, you know, figuring out, you know, what the students are, are looking for when they come into the class in a lot of ways. But anyways, when I ask that question every year, um, you know, I just get answers that are basically like, this was the most important thing I learned and this is why. Um, during the pandemic, 
I got those answers. But after I got those answers, uh, in every class, I would have several students that after they wrote that answer would write like a little note afterwards that just said, thank you so much for doing this in person. Um, I don't know how I would have done this on zoom and stuff like that. Um, you know, normally I don't get any comments like that. You know, um, we always have teacher evaluations and things like that. So like people usually save their comments for things like that. But, um, but during the pandemic, I started getting comments like that. So going beyond just what they learned and why they, why they thought it was valuable. They started actually, you know, just making little comments about, you know, thanks for being here. Thanks for doing this, like that kind of thing. And so to me, that really justified, you know, my decision that, you know, this is what this, what a lot of students really wanted. Not to get you in trouble here, but that decision was not popular with some other colleagues, right? Not necessarily in your department, but just on campus. I mean, you, did you get some pushback for that? Um, I, I didn't get pushback. I mean, I, I will say one thing cause I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a tenured professor and I run my department. So, I mean, uh, I don't know. I feel like maybe I have a responsibility to say this. I think the university did a really bad job of like, uh, of, of, uh, reaching out to the people who did this, uh, who, who actually did this, um, who taught in person, who kept teaching in person during the pandemic. Um, like I under, and I know, and I, and I think I know why. I mean, I think one of the reasons they did it, it's like, there are literally some people who, um, you know, had like legitimate health concerns and things like that, especially early on in the pandemic, we didn't know anything. Sure. Um, you know, but even later on, you know, there are people who are older, there are people who had, uh, health issues that would put them at high risk and things like that. And like, um, and to those people, like I completely understand not, not teaching in person. Um, and, um, but the people who did choose to teach in person, uh, I mean, there were there was no there was no sort of credit given or anything like that and no one did it for the credit like nobody was doing it because they thought that like you know they were going to get a thank you note or you know something like that you know or that somebody was going to make a big deal about it you did it because Um, it was your job to do it and you thought that was the way that you that was the best way that you could teach the material that you're paid to teach to the the, frankly to the to the customers my point was is that i kind of felt like you know um the people who were willing to do that like they, they should have you know, said something like they don't need to treat them in a special way. They don't need to give them like a bonus. They don't need to do something like I'm not, I'm not saying that they should have been rewarded for doing that because that is unfair to people who like have legitimate health issues and couldn't, and and it wasn't even really a choice for them. Sure. Um, but you know, they, they could have done a better job just, you know, uh, just kind of reaching out and thanking people, especially amidst all of the criticism that they were, uh, getting from, uh, from parents and students and things like that about, you know, the lack of, of classes being offered, but that's, you know, um, but I think, but I, but I think that that's, it's mostly because they didn't want to seem like they were, you know, um, rewarding people for something that some people didn't even have a choice in, in doing, I think. Um, but to me, I, I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, um, I didn't do it for the credit. I didn't do it because I wanted them to thank me. I didn't do, uh, you know, I did it because I thought this was the best way to deliver classes to students. And I thought that this is what students would want. And, um, and I don't regret what I did. And, um, I think that my students are happy that I did it. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not even, 
I was appreciative of it, and I didn't have a kid in any of your classes, and I wasn't sending a kid to Ole Miss at the time. So, but I appreciated it. I thought it was the right thing, and you know, I think I've said I've said this before. I think fifty years from now, you and I'll probably both be gone by then. But fifty years from now, when our great grandkids are writing papers on twenty twenty and what happened, I don't think history is going to judge the decision makers well. Um, I really don't. I think history is going to judge the decision makers quite poorly because I thought it was a, and, and this isn't even hindsight. I was saying it at the time. I understood. I understood in March of 2020, but by about May of 2020, and certainly by June of 2020, it was obvious that that ideology was taking over over practicality and what happened over the next 16, 18 months in a lot of fields, including higher education. A lot of damage was done that was completely unnecessary. That's my opinion. You don't have to share it, but that's mine. Well, I think my biggest frustration um, was actually um, my biggest frustration was actually with elementary education and things like that. Um, and my biggest issue was that we had data from Europe that was showing that um, that's you know um, that these like elementary schools were not. Um, places where this was being spread um you know these were not super spreader events and um and i think that especially at a young age um you know the the value of that year of education is really important and so what i was concerned about the whole time was is um you know what are the costs of um, you know, associated with education, like it always comes down to, like we, we talked about this, you know, back during the pandemic, you know, it's always costs versus benefits. And so, you know, the benefits of keeping the students home is obvious in the sense that it's like, well, if they're home, like then, you know, they're, they're probably not going to get sick. And so that's an obvious benefit, but the costs are, you know, sort of, you know, what kind of education are they getting while they're not there? And I think that we're already seeing mounting evidence that we have a lot of kids that have fallen behind. And so, you know, one of the things we have to address is, you know, uh, you know, do, do the benefits exceed the costs? And to me, at the, and, and to me, like, it's easy to look back with hindsight and figure out, you know, um, mistakes that we made. Um, but I think like we were talking about it back then, like that was something where I really felt like, um, we didn't need to wait for hindsight. We had evidence that, um, that we could do things like that. And, um, and, you know, so to me now, when I see all these stories about, you know, students falling behind and, and things like that, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of, it's sad and it's frustrating, right? Because, um, these were things that should have at least gotten more debate. Like, even if we made the same choice, I mean, they, they should have been at least given more, um, more discussion. I could not agree more. Yeah, I completely agree. Hey, I've kept you uh, long enough. I really appreciate your time very much. I hope the, uh, I know the listeners did too. So look forward to seeing you soon, talking to you soon. Thanks for spending some time with us here on Mind of My Money. Hey, thanks for having me. That's Josh Hendrickson. Don't forget, uh, we'll be back in a week or so. Martin will be back with the show. And then two weeks, Martin and I will be back with our uh, usual Thursday show. Brought to you by Pinnacle. It's mypinwealth.com. M-Y-P-I-N-N wealth.com. Until next time, I'm Neil McCready. Take care. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? 
Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.